Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening, and a welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm so glad you could be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we do that, we'll take some time here to relax. Take a moment to get comfy where you are. Allow your body to sink into your mattress and pillows and actively focus on releasing any tension you are holding. Take a deep breath in through your nose and as you do so, mentally gather together all your outstanding thoughts from the day. On your exhale, let these thoughts float away from you. You can come back to them tomorrow. For now, you have nothing left to do but get a good night's rest. I love that feeling, don't you? In the last episode, Harry and Professor Hardwick were eating their evening meal at Professor M. Fredrickson's home. Professor Hardwick was casually inquiring about any books by Arna Sacknusom that may be found in Iceland. But M. Fredrickson explained that they were all burnt after the scientist was convicted of heresy. This confirmed for the professor the reason why Sack Newsom would have written such an important discovery in a hidden code, and he felt extremely vindicated in his mission. M. Fredrickson introduced Harry and his uncle to a strong and silent local eider duck hunter named Hans, whom he suggested could guide them to Snaefels to begin their expedition. In a few days, they were ready to set off, Hans on foot and Harry and the professor on horseback through the barren, volcanic landscape of southern Iceland. And that's where we pick back up tonight. Hans leading Harry and Professor Hardwig to the infamous Snaefels. So sit back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 9, K. 
continued. Some two hours or more after we had left the city of Reykjavik, we reached the little town called Alkirkja, or the principal church. It consists simply of a few houses, not what in England or Germany we should call a hamlet. Hans stopped here one half hour. He shared our frugal breakfast, answered yes and no to my uncle's questions as to the nature of the road, and at last, when asked where we were to pass the night, he was as laconic as usual. Garda was his one-word reply. I took occasion to consult the map to see where Garda was to be found. After looking keenly, I found a small town of that name on the borders of Kvalfjord, about four miles from Reykjavik. I pointed this out to my uncle, who made a very energetic grimace. Only four miles out of twenty-two? he said. Why, it is only a little walk. He was about to make some energetic observation to the guide, but Hans, without taking the slightest notice of him, went in front of the horses and walked ahead with the same imperturbable phlegm he had always exhibited. Three hours later, still traveling over those apparently interminable and sandy prairies, we were compelled to go round the Kolofjorda, an easier and shorter cut than crossing the gulfs. Shortly after, we entered a place of communal jurisdiction called Yulburg, and the clock of which would have then struck twelve if any Icelandic church had been rich enough to possess so valuable and useful an article. These sacred edifices are, however, very much like the people who do without watches and never miss them. Here, the horses were allowed to take some rest and refreshment. Then, following a narrow strip of shore between high rocks and sea, they took us to the Alkirkje of Brantar, and, after another mile, to Sauerbor Annexia, a chapel of ease situated on the southern bank of the Kvalfjord. It was four o'clock in the evening, and we had traveled four Danish miles, about equal to twenty English. The fjord was in this place about half a mile in width. The sweeping and broken waves came rolling in upon the pointed rocks. The gulf was surrounded by rocky walls, a mighty cliff, 3,000 feet in height, remarkable for its brown strata, separated here and there by beds of tufa of a reddish hue. Now, whatever may have been the intelligence of our horses, I had not the slightest reliance upon them 
as a means of crossing a stormy arm of the sea. To ride over salt water upon the back of a little horse seemed to me absurd. If they are really intelligent, I said to myself, they will certainly not make the attempt. In any case, I shall trust rather to my own intelligence than theirs. But my uncle was in no humor to wait. He dug his heels into the sides of his steed and made for the shore. His horse went to the very edge of the water, sniffed at the approaching wave, and retreated. My uncle, who was, sooth to say, quite as obstinate as the beast he bestrode, insisted on making the desired advance. This attempt was followed by a new refusal on the part of the horse, which quietly shook its head. This demonstration of rebellion was followed by a volley of words from my uncle and followed by kicks on the part of the horse, which threw its head and heels upward and tried to throw its rider. At length, the sturdy little pony spread out its legs in a stiff and ludicrous attitude, got from under the professor's legs and left him standing with both feet on a separate stone like the Colossus of Rhodes. Wretched animal, said my uncle, suddenly transformed into a foot passenger and as angry and ashamed as a dismounted cavalry officer on the field of battle. Foya, said the guide, tapping him familiarly on the shoulder. What? A ferry boat? My uncle asked. Hans nodded, pointing to where lay the boat in question. Well, I said, quite delighted with the information. So it is. Why did you not say so before? Said my uncle. Why not start at once? Hans explained to my uncle that we had to wait for the appropriate tide. What does he say? I asked, considerably puzzled by the delay and the dialogue. My uncle translated the Danish words for my information. Of course, I understand. We must wait till the tide serves. I said. I thoroughly understood and appreciated the necessity for waiting before crossing the fjord, for that moment when the sea is at its highest point is in a state of slack water. As neither the ebb nor flow can then be felt, the ferryboat is in no danger of being carried out to sea or dashed upon the rocky coast. The favorable moment did not come until six o'clock in the evening. Then my uncle, myself, and guide, two boatmen, and the four horses got into a very awkward, 
flat bottom boat. Accustomed as I had been to the steam ferry boats of the Elba, I found the long oars of the boatmen slow means of locomotion. We were more than an hour in crossing the fjord, but at length the passage was concluded without accident. Half an hour later, we reached Garda. Chapter 10 Travelling in Iceland It ought, one would have thought, to have been night, even in the 65th parallel of latitude, but still, the nocturnal illumination did not surprise me, for in Iceland, during the months of June and July, the sun never sets. The temperature, however, was very much lower than I expected. I was cold, but even that did not affect me so much as ravenous hunger. Welcome indeed, therefore, was the hut which hospitably opened its doors to us. It was merely the house of a peasant, but in the matter of hospitality, it was worthy of being the palace of a king. As we alighted at the door, the master of the house came forward, held out his hand, and without any further ceremony, signaled to us to follow him. We followed him, for to accompany him was impossible. A long, narrow, gloomy passage led to the interior of this habitation, made from beams roughly squared by the axe. This passage gave ingress to every room. The chambers were four in number. The kitchen, the workshop, where the weaving was carried on, the general sleeping chamber of the family, and the best room to which strangers were especially invited. My uncle, whose lofty stature had not been taken into consideration when the house was built, contrived to knock his head against the beams of the roof. We were introduced into our chamber, a kind of large room with a hard earthen floor and lighted by a window, the panes of which were made of a sort of parchment from the intestines of a sheep, very far from transparent. The bedding was composed of dry hay thrown into two long red wooden boxes ornamented with sentences painted in Icelandic. I really had no idea that we should be made so comfortable. As soon as we had freed ourselves from our heavy travelling costume, the voice of our host was heard calling to us to come into the kitchen the only room in which the Icelanders ever made any fire, no matter how cold it may be. My uncle, nothing loath, hastened to obey this hospitable and friendly invitation. I followed, 
The kitchen chimney was made on an antique model. A large stone standing in the middle of the room was the fireplace. Above in the roof was a hole for the smoke to pass through. This apartment was kitchen, parlor, and dining room all in one. On our entrance, our worthy host, as if he had not seen us before, advanced ceremoniously, uttered a word which means be happy, and then kissed both of us on the cheek. His wife followed, pronounced the same word with the same ceremonial, and then the husband and wife, placing their right hands upon their hearts, bowed profoundly. The woman I came to learn was the proud mother of nineteen children, who, little and big, rolled, crawled, and walked about the room. Volumes of smoke arose from the angular fireplace in the middle of the room. Every now and then, I could see a fresh face peering at me through the vapor. Both my uncle and myself, however, were very friendly with the whole party, and before we were aware of it, there were three or four of these little ones on our shoulders, as many on our boxes, and the rest hanging about our legs, laughing and playing. This concert was interrupted by the announcement of supper. At this moment, our worthy guide, the Ida Duck Hunter, came in after seeing to the feeding and stabling of the horses. That had consisted in letting them loose to browse on the stunted green of the Icelandic prairies. There was little for them to eat, but moss and some very dry and innutritious grass. Next day, they were ready before the door, sometime before we were. Welcome, said Hans. Then tranquilly, with the air of an automaton, without any more expression in one kiss than another, he embraced the host and hostess and their 19 children. This ceremony concluded to the satisfaction of all parties. We all sat down to table, that is, 24 of us, somewhat crowded. Those who were best off had only two juveniles on their knees. As soon, however, as the inevitable soup was placed on the table, the natural taciturny prevailed over all else. Our host filled our plates with a portion of lichen soup, of Iceland moss, of by no means disagreeable flavor, and an enormous lump of fish floating in sour butter. After that, there came some skier, a kind of curds and whey, served with biscuits and juniper berry juice. To drink, we had blunder, 
skimmed milk with water. I was hungry, so hungry that by way of dessert, I finished up with a basin of thick oaten porridge. As soon as the meal was over, the children disappeared, whilst the grown people sat around the fireplace on which was placed turf and heather. As soon as everybody was sufficiently warm, a general dispersion took place, all retiring to their respective couches. Our hostess offered that we could pull off our stockings, but as we graciously declined, she left us to our bed of dry fodder. Next day, at five in the morning, we took our leave of these hospitable people. My uncle had great difficulty in making them accept a sufficient and proper remuneration. Hans then gave the signal to start. We had scarcely got a hundred yards from Garda when the character of the country changed. The soil began to be marshy and boggy and less favorable to progress. To the right, the range of mountains was prolonged indefinitely, like a great system of natural fortifications of which we skirted the glasses. We met with numerous streams and rivulets which it was necessary to ford, and that without wetting our baggage. As we advanced, the deserted appearance increased, and yet, now and then we could see human shadows flitting in the distance. It was a lonely scene. The very last tufts of grassy vegetation appeared to die at our feet. Not a tree was to be seen, except a few stunted willows about as big as blackberry bushes. Now and then, we watched a falcon soaring in the grey and misty air, taking his flight towards warmer and sunnier regions. I could not help feeling a sense of melancholy come over me. I sighed for my own home and wished to be back with Gretchen. We were compelled to cross several little fjords and at last came to a real gulf. The tide was at its height and we were able to go over at once and reach the hamlet of Alftanus about a mile farther. That evening, after fording the Alpha and the Heta, two rivers rich in trout and pike, we were compelled to pass the night in a deserted house, worthy of being haunted by all the fays of Scandinavian mythology. The king of cold had taken up his residence there, and made us feel his presence all night. The following day was remarkable by its lack of any particular incidents. Always the same damp and swampy soil, 
the same dreary uniformity, the same quiet and monotonous aspect of scenery. In the evening, having accomplished the half of our projected journey, we slept at the annexia of Crosalt. For a whole mile, we had under our feet nothing but lava. This disposition of the soil is called crown. The crumbled lava on the surface was in some instances like ship cables stretched out horizontally. In others, coiled up in heaps. An immense field of lava came from the neighboring mountains, all extinct volcanoes, but whose remains showed what they once had been. Here and there could be made out steam from hot water springs. There was no time, however, for us to take in more than a cursory view of these phenomena. We had to go forward with what speed we might. Soon, the soft and swampy soil again appeared under the feet of our horses, while at every hundred yards we came upon one or more small lakes. Our journey was now in a westerly direction. We had, in fact, swept the round bay of Faxa, and the twin white summits of Snaefels rose to the clouds at a distance of less than five miles. The horses now advanced rapidly. The accidents and difficulties of the soil no longer checked them. I confess that fatigue began to tell severely upon me, but my uncle was as firm and as hard as he had been on the first day. I could not help admiring both the excellent professor and the worthy guide, for they appeared to regard this rugged expedition as a mere walk. On Saturday, the 20th of June, at six o'clock in the evening, we reached Badir, a small town picturesquely situated on the shore of the ocean. And here, the guide asked for his money. My uncle settled with him immediately. It was now the family of Hans himself, that is to say, his uncles and his cousins, who offered us hospitality. We were exceedingly well received, and without taking too much advantage of the goodness of these worthy people, I should very much have liked to have rested with them after the fatigues of the journey. But my uncle, who did not require rest, had no idea of anything of the kind. And despite the fact that the next day was Sunday, I was compelled once more to mount my steed. The soil was again affected by the neighborhood of the mountains, whose granite peered out of the ground like tops of an old oak. 
We were skirting the enormous base of the mighty volcano. My uncle never took his eyes off it. He could not keep from gesticulating and looking at it with a kind of sullen defiance, as much as to say, that is the giant I have made up my mind to conquer. After four hours of steady traveling, the horses stopped of themselves before the door of the presbytery of Stapi. Chapter 11 We Reach Mount Snaefels, the Reykir. Stapi is a town consisting of 30 huts built on a large plain of lava exposed to the rays of the sun reflected from the volcano. It stretches its humble tenements along the end of a little fjord, surrounded by a basaltic wall of the most singular character. Basalt is a brown rock of igneous origin. It assumes regular forms, which astonish by their singular appearance. Here we found nature proceeding geometrically and working quite after a human fashion, as if she had employed the plummet line, the compass, and the rule. If elsewhere she produces grand artistic effects by piling up huge masses without order or connection, if elsewhere we see truncated cones, imperfect pyramids with an old succession of lines, here, as if wishing to give a lesson in regularity and preceding the architects of the early ages, she has erected a severe order of architecture which neither the splendors of Babylon nor the marvels of Greece ever surpassed. I had often heard of the giant's causeway in Ireland and of Fingal's cave in one of the Hebrides, but the grand spectacle of a real basaltic formation had never yet come before my eyes. This, at Stapi, gave us an idea of one in all its wonderful beauty and grace. The wall of the fjord, like nearly the whole of the peninsula, consisted of a series of vertical columns in height about 30 feet. These upright pillars of stone of the finest proportions supported an archivolt of horizontal columns which formed a kind of half-vaulted roof above the sea. At certain intervals and below this natural basin, the eye was pleased and surprised by the sight of oval openings through which the outward waves came thundering in volleys of foam. Some banks of basalt, torn from their fastenings by the fury of the waves, 
lay scattered on the ground like the ruins of an ancient temple, ruins eternally young, over which the storms of ages swept without producing any perceptible effect. This was the last stage of our journey. Hans had brought us along with fidelity and intelligence, and I began to feel somewhat more comfortable when I reflected that he was to accompany us still farther on our way. When we halted before the house of the rector, a small and incommodious cabin, neither handsome nor more comfortable than those of his neighbors, I saw a man in the act of shoeing a horse, a hammer in his hand, and a leather apron tied round his waist. The Eiderdown hunter greeted him, using the typical salutation in his own language. Good day, replied the former in Danish, which was his native tongue, being that he had been stationed here from Denmark. Hans turned round and introduced him to my uncle. The rector, repeated the worthy professor. It appears, my dear Harry, that this worthy man is the rector, and he is not above doing his own work. During the speaking of these words, the guide intimated to the rector what was the true state of the case the good man, ceasing from his occupation, gave a kind of hello, upon which a tall woman, almost a giantess to my perception, came out of the hut. She was at least six feet high and came to receive us into her house. The room devoted to strangers appeared to me to be by far the worst in the presbytery. It was narrow and cramped. There was, however, no choice about the matter. The rector had no notion of practicing the usual cordial hospitality. Far from it. Before the day was over, I found we had to deal with a blacksmith, a fisherman, a hunter, a carpenter, anything but a clergyman. It must be said in his favor that we had caught him on a weekday. Probably he appeared to greater advantage on the Sunday. In truth, we soon found that our host did not count receiving guests among the cardinal virtues. My uncle soon became aware of the kind of man he had to deal with. Instead of a learned scholar, he found a dull, ill-mannered person. He therefore resolved to start on his great expedition as soon as possible. He did not care about fatigue and resolved to spend a few days in the mountains. The preparations for our departure were made the very next day after our arrival at Stapi. Hans now hired three Icelanders to help carry our luggage, 
as the horses could no longer proceed with us. When, however, these worthy people had reached the bottom of the crater, they were to go back and leave us to ourselves. This point was settled before they would agree to start. On this occasion, my uncle partly confided in Hans, the Ida Duck Hunter, and gave him to understand that it was his intention to continue his exploration of the volcano to the last possible limits. Hans listened calmly and then nodded his head. To go there or elsewhere, to bury himself in the bowels of the earth, or to travel over its summits was all the same to him. As for me, amused and occupied by the incidents of travel, I had begun to forget the inevitable future, but now I was once more destined to realize the actual state of affairs. What was to be done? Run away? But if I really had intended to leave Professor Hardwick to his fate, it should have been at Hamburg and not at the foot of Snaefels. One idea above all others began to trouble me, a very terrible idea, and one calculated to shake the nerves of a man even less sensitive than myself. Let us consider the matter, I said to myself. We are going to ascend the Snaefels Mountain. Well and good. We are about to pay a visit to the very bottom of the crater. Good still. Others have done it and did not perish from that cause. That, however, is not the whole matter to be considered. If a road does really present itself by which to descend into the dark and subterraneous bowels of Mother Earth, if this thrice unhappy Sacknusum has really told the truth, we shall be most certainly lost in the midst of the labyrinth of subterraneous galleries of the volcano. Now, we have no evidence to prove that Snaefels is really extinct. What proof have we that an eruption is not shortly about to take place? Because the monster has slept soundly since 1219, does it follow that he is never to wake? If he does wake, what is to become of us? These were questions worth thinking about, and upon them I reflected long and deeply. I could not lie down in search of sleep without dreaming of eruptions. The more I thought, the more I objected to be reduced to the state of dross and ashes. I could stand it no longer. So I determined at last to submit the whole case to my uncle. I sought him, I laid before him my fears, and then drew back in order to let him get his passion over at his ease. 
I have been thinking about the matter, he said in the quietest tone in the world. What did he mean? Was he at last about to listen to the voice of reason? Did he think of suspending his projects? It was almost too much happiness to be true. I, however, made no remark. In fact, I was only too anxious not to interrupt him and allow him to reflect at his leisure. After some moments, he spoke out. I have been thinking about the matter, he resumed. Ever since we have been at Stapi, my mind has been almost solely occupied with the grave question which has been submitted to me by yourself, for nothing would be unwiser and more inconsistent than to act with imprudence. I heartily agree with you, my dear uncle, was my somewhat hopeful rejoinder. It is now six hundred years since Snaefels has spoken, but though now reduced to a state of utter silence, he may speak again, my uncle continued. New volcanic eruptions are always preceded by perfectly well-known phenomena. I have closely examined the inhabitants of this region. I have carefully studied the soil, and I beg to tell you emphatically, my dear Harry, there will be no eruption at present. As I listened to his positive affirmations, I was stupefied and could say nothing. I see you doubt my word, said my uncle. Follow me. He waved me after him. I obeyed mechanically. Leaving the presbytery, the professor took a road through an opening in the basaltic rock, which led far away from the sea. We were soon in open country, if we could give such a name to a place all covered with volcanic deposits. The whole land seemed crushed under the weight of enormous stones, of trap, of basalt, of granite, of lava, and of all other volcanic substances. I could see many sprouts of steam rising in the air, these white vapors called in the Icelandic language reykir come from hot water fountains and indicate by their violence the volcanic activity of the soil. Now the sight of these appeared to justify my apprehension. I was, therefore, all the more surprised and mortified when my uncle thus addressed me. You see all this smoke, Harry, my boy, he said. Well, as long as you see them thus, you have nothing to fear from the volcano, he said. Be careful to remember this, continued the professor. At the approach of an eruption, these spouts of vapor redouble their activity 
to disappear altogether during the period of volcanic eruption. For the elastic fluids no longer have the necessary tension, seek refuge in the interior of the crater instead of escaping through the fissures of the earth. If then the steam remains in its normal or habitual state, if their energy does not increase, and if you add to this the remark that the wind is not replaced by heavy, atmospheric pressure and dead calm, you may be quite sure that there is no fear of any immediate eruption. But, I began to reply, enough, my boy, my uncle said. When science has sent forth her fiat, it is only to hear and obey. I came back to the house quite downcast and disappointed. My uncle had completely defeated me with his scientific arguments. Nevertheless, I still had one hope. That hope was, when once we were at the bottom of the crater, that it would be impossible in default of a gallery or tunnel to descend any deeper. And this, despite all learned Sacknusums in the world. I passed the whole of the following night with a nightmare on my chest, and after unheard of miseries and tortures, found myself in the very depths of the earth, from which I was suddenly launched into planetary space under the form of an eruptive rock. Next day, June 23rd, Hans calmly awaited us outside the presbytery with his three companions loaded with provisions, tools, and instruments. Two iron-shod poles, two guns, and two large game bags were reserved for my uncle and myself. Hans, who was a man who never forgot even the minutest precautions, had added to our baggage a large skinful of water as an addition to our gourds. This assured us water for eight days. It was nine o'clock in the morning when we were quite ready. The rector and his huge wife stood at the door to see us off. To our supreme astonishment, their adieu took the shape of a formidable bill in which they even counted the use of the pastoral house, really and truly the most abominable and cramped place I ever was in. My uncle, however, paid without bargaining. A man who had made up his mind to undertake a voyage into the interior of the earth is not the man to haggle over a few rick's dollars. This important matter settled, Hans gave the signal for the departure, and some few moments later, we had left Stapi.